The scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. It can be found on page 886 in the Black Bibles. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Carolyn and Doug and Michaela and team. Before that, beautiful and uh, very appropriate for this passage. And good morning. Glad to be with you all this morning. Let's pray now as we look into uh, this first chapter of the Gospel of John. Oh God, you have revealed yourself to us in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in Christ the light shines in the darkness, and try as it might, the darkness has not and the darkness will not overcome the light of Christ. We pray, Father, that you would, even in this time, through your Holy Spirit, working uh, through the power of your word, shine your light uh, into the dark places in our hearts and our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard of the term bystander effect? If you took a psychology class after the 1960s, you probably encountered this in a, in a textbook. The bystander effect, um, in my super duper layman's terms, is the phenomenon that when multiple people witness the same traumatic event, there's a tendency for nothing to be done, for no one to intercede because each person who is there, knowing that other people are witnessing the same event, make the assumption that somebody else is going to intercede. So if 20 people witness a car accident, uh, they may assume, well, 19 other people besides me just saw that, and so there are 19 other people who can help in this situation, and so nobody does anything. The bystander effect entered the popular imagination in 1964 after the attack and the murder of a woman in Queens, New York, named Kitty Genovese. Some of y'all may 
remember this story. Kitty Genovese was uh, attacked in a robbery outside of her apartment on the street in Queens. And when the attacker attacked her, she screamed. And at that moment, lots of people heard. It was uh, in an article that was written the next week by the New York Times. They estimated that at least 38 people either witnessed or heard this attack on Kitty Genovese. And so what happened? They heard the screams. Lights came on in apartments. People stuck their heads outside to look around to see what was going on. At least 38 people saw what was going on, yet no one came downstairs to help her, and no one called 911. Tragic consequences. Each of them believed that because other people either saw or heard what was going on, they would intervene. That's the bystander effect. We're coming to the conclusion of our sermon series during the season of Advent. We've been calling this sermon series, At Last the King. It's a series that traces the coming of our Savior, Jesus, into the world. First, as Brad Wright preached several weeks ago about our need for a Savior, why do we need a Savior to enter the world? Second, as Andres Zelaya preached several weeks ago about the promise of a Savior, the fact that the coming of Jesus into the world, as shocking, as surprising as it was in that historical moment, is not a shock or a surprise in the grand story of the Bible because God promised it way back at the very beginning of the Bible. Last week, we looked into the prophecy of Isaiah, where we saw the prophecy of the coming of the King, of Jesus, into the world. And what we have seen in each one of these sermons, uh, as we are are kind of launching ourselves into a celebration of Christmas, is that these are moments in the darkness. They are glimpses of light. They are little beacons of light in the darkness, the darkness of the world, the darkness of of our lives because what we have seen in each one of these sermons is the darkness of our own hearts the darkness of the world that we live in and we have seen over and over and over again the consistent testimony of the bible that you and i can do nothing about the darkness in our lives the darkness in the world if no one intercedes for us we're going to lose the battle against the darkness in our hearts the darkness of sin And that brings us to our concluding sermon this morning in this series, the provision of a Savior. Does God ultimately keep his promises? And if he does, how does he do it? I'm going to suggest to you that the appropriate question for us to ask uh, as we launch into a a sermon on John chapter 1 is, through whom does he keep his promises? Not how. That's, good. That's a good question, but also through whom does he keep his promises? And the Apostle John answers that question for us in John chapter 1 with one key word. And strangely enough, the word that he uses that is key is word. Uh, it's a capital W, W-O-R-D, capital W, the word of God. And we see in verse 14 that that word of God is identified as Jesus. And the Word is what Christmas is really ultimately about. It's about the eternal Word and the saving Word. So first, Jesus is the eternal Word. When you think about God, if I were just to come up to you on the street and say, think for a moment about God. 
What is it that pops into your head, you know? There could be a lot of different answers to that question. For some of you, it could be that you think about God as an impersonal force that is in the world. It is not knowable. Uh, you try to tap into it in some way to, to fill some kind of spiritual void in your life. For some of you, when I ask you to think about God, you really think about nothing because you, you don't believe that there is such a thing as a God. Maybe some of you do believe God, but you get even now confused. What, what, what do I think about when I think about God? Because he feels far away from you, right? And it seems through maybe your circumstances or just maybe because you're distant from him that, that, you, that, that, that he's hard to know or impossible to know. You wonder if you really could have any kind of relationship with this thing called God. But see, that's the beauty of John chapter 1 because what John wants us to see in the opening words of his gospel is that we're not dealing with a thing called God. We're dealing with a person. And it is the very nature of God to reveal himself. Not only to tell you what he is like, but to show you by coming close to you. In the beginning, John says, was the word, and the word was with God, and the Word was God. Three things that we see just in that one sentence. Maybe one of the, every sentence in the Bible is important, but this is, this is a really important sentence in the Bible. Jesus is the creator word, John is saying. Jesus is the personal word. Jesus is the divine word. First, Jesus is the creator word. If you're familiar at all with the Bible and you read John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, your mind will probably jump back to another sentence in the Bible, actually the very first sentence in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What John is saying here is that Jesus is the agent of that creation. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, Jesus is not a creature. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is the creator. He's your creator. He is my creator. And that means, among many, many other things, it means that you are not an accident. You are not a cosmic accident floating around without purpose, without meaning, in a vast and void universe. Jesus is your creator. Second, Jesus is the personal word. Not only was Jesus in the beginning, he was with God in the beginning. And here we have uh, a, 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 a statement of this incredible, mysterious, but unique to Christian teaching of the Trinity. Jesus is God eternal, but he's distinct from God the Father. He is both God and with God. Jesus is a person. You see, this is important because it is possible to read the Bible, and particularly to read John sometimes as some kind of a theological abstraction, but that is the last thing that he would want you to do in approaching this text, the last thing that he would want to communicate. Because what John is saying is that which has been hidden throughout the ages, this mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages is now revealed in Christ, God the eternal word is personal and became personal in Jesus. And finally, Jesus is the 
divine word. This is simply the logical conclusion that John is pushing us toward through these first two points, and we see it in verse 2. The word was with God, and the word was God. So if your conception of Jesus is anything other, anything short of, anything less than God himself, the second person of the Trinity, it is simply different from what the Bible presents all the way from Genesis to Revelation and what John presents here. Was Jesus a man? Yes. Was he a historical person? Yes. Was he a a good man who lived a life of sacrificial and selfless service? Yes, he did that. Did Jesus die for what he believed in? Yes, he did that. But that is not all according to John. Jesus is the divine word. He is God himself. And so that brings us to a really important question. Is this what you believe about Jesus? Is this what you believe happened on that Christmas day, the very first one 2,000 years ago, that God himself came down and took on human flesh? It leads to a second question. Does that mean that that Jesus is the animating center and provides the ultimate meaning for your life? Because the Bible's pushing us to see Jesus as the only one who is strong enough to create and sustain the universe, as also the reason for your existence. And only Jesus will support the weight of putting onto him your ultimate meaning and purpose in life. If you put it anywhere else, it's ultimately going to falter and it's ultimately going to lead you probably into some kind of despair. There's a really fascinating episode, if you've seen this series, in season three of the Netflix series, The Crown, the story of Queen Elizabeth. It centers on uh, Prince Philip. He doesn't get a lot of, he doesn't get a lot of episodes that are all about him, but this one was. And it also centers on something that's important to the life of our city, the Apollo 11 lunar landing. It seems that Prince Philip And if you don't have your uh, royal family trading cards handy, Prince Philip is Queen Elizabeth's husband, okay? Uh, Prince Philip uh, was quite taken with the mission, the NASA mission to the moon. He was fascinated by it. And, And one of the reasons that he was fascinated by it is that we learned in previous seasons that before Prince Philip uh, became, you know, the, the Duke of Edinburgh, you know, married to the Queen of England, He was a man of action. He was in the military. He was restless. He was purposeful. He was adventurous. He was all of those things. But when his wife became queen at a very young age, younger than she wanted to, younger than he wanted to, because her father had died, when when he became not Philip, the adventurous human, but the Prince of Edinburgh, a lot of that purpose and a lot of that passion, a lot of that zest for life fell into the background. Quite literally, he fell into the background because in any public appearance, you can see this right now, Prince Philip is required to walk like two or three steps behind the queen any time they go out. His, his previous existence has faded into a distant memory. So what you saw in that episode was Philip's complete fascination with the grand adventure of these brave Americans going to the moon. 
He was captivated by it. And after the mission was over, and when those astronauts were taking the world tour, he jumped at the chance to meet them. In fact, he wanted to get private time with them because he had questions to ask them. Questions like, what did you see? Did you... You know, did you, did, did, what was it like being in space? Did you, did you feel closer to God? He, wanted, he had ultimate questions that he wanted to ask. And in this episode, strangely enough, the astronauts that came and visited the palace didn't seem interested in these questions at all. They only seemed interested in banal and surface things like, dude, how cool is it to live in this house? You know? Now, this is Houston. And I am going to defend the honor of our astronauts for all of you who are tempted to leave at this point because we do actually know that the astronauts that landed on the moon were in fact interested in ultimate questions. They wrote about it and they talked about it. So the crown took a little liberty with our, with our heroes, you know, with our astronauts. But the, the, the point is that, what, that, that Prince Philip was searching he thought he was going to find something about the meaning to life and, ta- and talking about going into space with these astronauts because his identity had been taken away from him. He didn't know who he was. All he was now was a title, the Prince of Edinburgh. And he just felt lost and angry He was angry at God about this. Even though he intellectually would say he didn't actually believe in God, he talked about him all the time, and he was certainly mad at him. For somebody who didn't believe in him, he was mad at him a lot, you know? He just couldn't find himself, you see? Our lives and our relationships can't handle the weight that we put on them for ultimate meaning. If you live out your search for achievement and your search for significance through your children... And a lot of people in our city actually do that. People don't say that they do that. They don't believe they do it, but just watch. Maybe watch yourself, actually. If you do that, you're going to crush them. You are going to crush your children. You will lose both your sense of significance, because they're never going to meet your 100% standard. So you lose that, and you'll lose your children. Because what you're doing is you're putting weight on them that they're unable to handle. They can't bear it. They're not created to bear it. They shouldn't be expected to bear it. This is one of those reasons that this time of year can be disappointing to us, right? Because this is the time of year that a lot of us think, if I can just get to the end of the semester, if I can just push through to the end of another calendar year, If I can just get my house decorated and and if I can just get the food cooked and if I can just get that right gift, if I can just get it right this year, then I'll be at peace. Then I'll be at rest. Then everything is going to be okay. But you know and I know that it never works like that, right? A new semester lies just around the corner. The cake is dry. Your mother-in-law opens your gift and says, oh, isn't that nice? I never would have thought of that. And then most of your break with your family is spent occupied by people who are arguing with each other, right? We can't rest in those things. We have to find it somewhere else. The Bible says, no, not somewhere else. Someone else. Jesus, the eternal word, he and he alone is worthy of building your life upon. And this is even more so the case because not only is Jesus the eternal word, he's also the saving word. 
You know, when you go to somebody and you tell them, I give you my word, and you really mean it, okay? Some people are habitual liars and just move them out. And you really mean it. I give you my word. What are you saying? In my mind, that's the most powerful way of telling somebody that you are absolutely, positively committed to keeping your promise. It's more powerful than saying, I promise, and it's more personal than formalizing an agreement through a contract. Giving someone your word is putting yourself and everything that makes you, you, behind a promise that you made. It's very impactful. And that is another way that Jesus is the word. You see, he's the saving word. He is the guarantee that all of God's promises are trustworthy and true. God's putting his entire self behind his promises quite literally quite liturgy literally as the apostle paul puts it all the promises of god are yes and amen in christ and john shows us this by demonstrating that jesus is the word of life and light and the word made flesh jesus is the word of life and light now all of us know by experience that life and death and light and darkness are part of of our experience in this world as human beings. John says it has been ever since the, the beginning, ever since our, our first parents. Going back to Genesis 1, the first command God gave was, let there be light. And from that moment on, God's truth and his grace, his goodness, penetrated into the deep, dark void that we now all know to be true in the world and in our own hearts. But the key point again is that light is not an abstraction. This light is a person. Jesus himself is the light. Jesus himself shines into the darkness of the world. Jesus himself came to remove the darkness and to replace it with light. And I want this to be encouraging to you. Because there are deep, dark recesses in every single one of us. All of us. All of us are struggling with the darkness in our own hearts. In some measure, some of you have seen the world and some of you have seen human beings at, at, at their very darkest. Those things that we want to stuff down deep, those things that we do not want anyone to know about us, those things that we don't want to show to the world, our, our anger, our addictions, our deep self-loathing, our jealousy of other people, our, our, our fears that keep us awake at 3 o'clock in the morning, our anxieties. The truth is God knows them all. He, they're not hidden from him. He knows them all. But the good news of the gospel is this, is that God does not sit above you looking at the deep darkness in your heart and going, whoa, that is ugly. Whoa, that's embarrassing. That is just, I can't believe it. I can't believe what resides in you. He doesn't do that. He says, yeah, there is deep darkness in this world. There is deep darkness in your heart and in your life. I'm going to come. I'm going to shine my light into it. I'm going to enter into the darkness myself and heal you of it. And in that we see the greatest mystery of John 1, that Jesus is the Word made flesh. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God himself, the creator Word, the personal Word, the divine Word became one of us. 
taking on real human flesh, feeling hunger, feeling and experiencing loneliness and pain, all for the purpose of diving into the darkness to bring light and life. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. And I want this to be both a challenge and an encouragement to you. I want it to be a challenge to you in that John is pushing every single person here this morning to ask yourself, where do you place your hope? What do you look for for life? If your hope ultimately does not end in Jesus himself, it falls short and it will lead to a continual spiraling into the darkness. If you consider yourself to be a spiritual person, but your spirituality leads you anywhere short of faith and trust in Christ alone, you'll never arrive. You'll never be at rest. You'll never sit and root yourself in that rock of your salvation. And here there's an encouragement. It is in the very nature of God to reveal himself. Not abstractly. Not in some series of mysteries or codes that take some kind of an algorithm to figure out. But in a person. Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. In sending Jesus into the world, God is signaling the absolute, extreme, extraordinarily amazing links that he will go to. To establish a relationship with you. He will not and did not hold himself back. He will pursue you all the way out of heaven. Onto this earth and ultimately to the cross. You see God himself dove headlong into the darkness. He is the saving word. At the end of the day. This is what makes Christmas so amazing because this is what makes following Jesus different than any other world religion or any other path of spirituality. You know, other world religions, other spiritual paths are largely about you and I ascending toward God. They are about us going up toward God, doing the right things to assuage God, to uh, mollify his anger and to earn his love. Finding enlightenment by escaping the world and ascending to God, to a spiritual place. Laboring, toiling, working, trying to reach the heights, right? And it's constant and consistent. It lasts your entire life and you never arrive. But here's the thing. At Christmas, it's completely opposite We don't go up. God comes down. He comes down to do what you and I cannot do. Christmas teaches us that there is absolutely no bystander effect whatsoever with God. When God sees your plight, when God hears your screams, he doesn't shut the blinds. He doesn't turn the TV up louder so he doesn't hear anything. He doesn't assume that somebody else can do something about it because he knows that nobody else can. God comes downstairs. He goes outside. He enters the world. He fights. And he defeats your enemies. That's a Savior who is worthy of your worship. 
That's a Savior who's worthy of your hope. That's a Savior worthy of your heart. That's a Savior worthy of your life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming down. When we needed you most, and there is absolutely nothing that we can do, you did not stay a safe distance from us. You walked in, and you fought, and your fight took you to the place of the cross. It took you to the place of your death. But it also resulted in your resurrection and your promise of eternal life for all who repent and believe. Let us place our hope on you and on you alone. This we ask in your name. Amen.